0: Hello and welcome to Series 6 of the Hay Festival podcast. We're back with more Hay Festival highlights, sharing events with the world's greatest writers and thinkers, as well as hearing about some of their more private interests and passions that influence their writing. I had the pleasure of talking to comedian and writer David Baddiel during this year's Hay Festival about taking new opportunities, writer's block and comedy influences. But before we move on to our chat, here he is in conversation with Simon Sharma about anti-Semitism with his new book, Jews Don't Count.
1: A lot of people I think think of anti-Semitism correctly as something that comes principally from the far right. Uh, so obviously just from Nazis and neo-Nazis and those people are on the rise and they completely still exist. Uh, but I wasn't interested in this book in talking about that, because to some extent, it's not very interesting. There's no deconstruction to be done on the people who just at the front of their minds think, I hate Jews and want to kill them, right? people that, They've always existed, those people, but I'm not interested in them at some level. What I'm interested in are those people who are in their front of their minds utterly about uh, and identifying themselves as people who fight racism who uh, are against any form of discrimination and yet seem to be very neglectful of that so what this book describes is an absence really which is part of its kind of complexity i guess is someone once said to me what you're trying to describe is something that isn't there and i could read something that perhaps yeah I do so uh, that Please. explains that i start the book with about 12 examples of what i'm talking about which is this sort of Uh, sort of lack of equivalence of the way that people react to anti-Semitism who are in that. And this is probably the most extreme example. I start off with lots of examples. There's one time when I'm listening to uh, Radio 4 when it decides to play... One. this is only in 2017 Jeremy Irons reading every T.S. Eliot poem in, uh, on New Year's Day in, in 2017 and I'm just sitting there in my dressing gown which I think I wore all day on New Year's Day in 2017 waiting for the moment when Jeremy Irons reads out from uh, Bla- Blaisstein with a Baedeker yeah, Gerontian yeah, private, yeah. Right, not
2: Gerontian from, oh, from oh, the, the other Baedeker, one. Baedeker with yeah uh, that one <laughs> yeah. with a Baedeker we're never going to get the title no, we're not. never going to get the not. fucking no, title yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but two uh, great minds it's true.
1: But I can remember the, if I can't remember the title, the lines I can remember are the rats are underneath the pile, the Jew is underneath the, the lot. lot. And that is, uh, th- I just remember thinking, I don't think these lines would be read out, an equivalent one, equivalent negative stereotype of any ethnic minority on New Year's Day as part of a celebration about any other ethnic minority, not in the, not in the culture we live in now. Anyway, this is another example, and it's about football. In 2008, I was sitting as usual on a Saturday afternoon with my brother Ivor watching Chelsea at Stamford Bridge. We'd been going for many years, and by this point sat in the Upper East Stand. Chelsea were playing Aston Villa. The game was dull. On the big screen, a score came up of another match. Tottenham Hotspur were being beaten by Hull. The bored crowd picked up on this and started chanting, we hate Tottenham and we hate Tottenham. I apologise, by the way, if there's any Spurs fans in. (laughs) Then, yeah, he's one. Then, with wearying predictability, this mutated into the crowd chanting the word Yiddo. For those who don't know about this phenomenon, the Tottenham Hotspur Football Club is located in an area of London that is fairly well populated by Jews. For this reason, Spurs fans both self-identify and are identified by others as a Jewish club, even though the vast majority of them are not Jewish, and this leads to various chants based around the word Yid. Those who do know about it are still generally confused, as they tend to think it's all just Spurs fans chanting the word positively. It isn't. It's also chanted by the fans of Chelsea, Arsenal, West Ham and other clubs at Spurs fans, menacingly, horribly. Along with associated anti-Semitic chants, Spurs are on the way to Auschwitz, for example, and hissing to simulate the noise of gas chambers. On this particular occasion, the chanting of the word Yiddo was joined by one particular Chelsea fan about ten rows behind us, deciding to shout repeatedly, Fuck the fucking Yids! Fuck the fucking Yids! And then... Just to make clear that by Yids, he didn't just mean Spurs fans, that became, fuck the fucking Jews. Fuck the fucking Jews. This went on for some time. Me and Ivor, my brother, looked at each other. Ivar said, what should we do? I shrugged. So then my brother, bless him, got up, turned round, and told the bloke to shut up. The man replied, in the classic mode, no, you fucking shut up," <laughs> Ivor said. "No, you fucking shut up." Derek <laughs> <Asteric laughs> and Clyde. And then, miraculously, he did. The racist shut up. Ivor sat down and said, "I think I'm going to cry." Oh. By the time this happened, we had sat, well, stood, and then sat, listening to this stuff at Stamford Bridge for 30 years. Over that period, the culture around racism in football changed immeasurably. In the 1970s, football fandom was unbelievably racist, and immense strides were made to eradicate it over the next decades by organisations like Kick It Out. By 2008, the world had definitely moved on, so much so that the Chelsea programme that day contained a very clear message that any racist abuse heard in the stands at matches would lead to an immediate intervention by stewards and a life ban for the abuser concerned. Well, not any racist abuse, it turns out. No steward intervened when this happened, and no life ban was imposed on the man shouting, fuck the fucking Jews. The world had moved on, but it seems that it it had forgotten something. It had left one racism behind. And the point about that story is that, not that there are anti-Semites at football matches, that will always be the case, but that in the time we live in now, football, particularly football, but really many places, are a site of reconstruction about that issue, are a site where people try to change things from what they were. And so that's what you might expect to have happened with this racism too. But it hasn't. Things have changed a bit since 2008, but not that much.
2: No. And we were saying, actually, this is the case in the Dutch football club Ajax as well, which also kind of, again, always produce gas chamber hissing, actually, from from the rival clubs. Do you think that's sort of... So part of the work you wanted to do with this book, really, was sort of... uh, you know, lowering the threshold of awareness. Simply, actually, I wonder if it gets through to the terraces at Chelsea or Arsenal, or, or even at Spurs, where they shouldn't be doing it. I mean, you had you had some pushback. I push back as a Spurs fan. I think stupidly, actually, and I I, um, I, I will never let Dave. I'll try and never let David get the better of the argument, but he absolutely had the right argument against me this time. So, because I said, well, you know, it's a kind of could be a kind of gesture of solidarity, pride. that was rubbish. Really, and uh, you didn't. You were kind enough not to say that. But do you do you think actually, it had you know? Do you think actually, things are changing or actually getting worse? Really, it's slightly different. From, I want to go back in a minute to whether identity politics actually has made the the whole syndrome. But this is really part of you know. It's actually not clearly. I doubt whether the fucking gene fu- 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 was actually. You know, uh, doing Marxist semin- seminars really in the. Week. No, but he was not part. But he's of not the, the point. Yeah, he was an extension of skinhead world. You know, maybe his head may not have been skinny, as it were, but he was part of no, that kind of. Well, joy of ugliness, really. That well, the guy
1: shouting that, as I say, is—he's well, probably not a paid-up member of the far right, but my imagination is. A Tommy
2: Robinson type. Whatever. Is yeah, 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 yeah.
1: He's a Tommy Robinson type. <clears throat> he's not the point. The yeah. point is the silence yeah. Yeah. from the stewards yes. Yes. who are told yes. Yes. to look out for any racist abuse. And yes. also, the problem is not just that. Did the you watch that a the, bit
2: more? So well, the
1: problem to is that we went. Okay. Me, me and my brother decided to make a film, a short film oh, called okay. The Y Word. At that right. point, to try and raise awareness about this issue, and we had a lot of problems getting it made. And again, that came. From who? Well, that came from from as it were the good guys because kick racism out of football initially were very unkeen about So you very,
2: were a distraction for them, were you? Was that it? What well, about thought...
1: distraction? I think they did feel, yeah. I mean, I think at the time they did feel like, well, we've got a lot of other things, a lot of other issues we're trying to create. They, I think they had a homophobia campaign to start. All very important issues, by the way. Just to be clear, something that's very important within, And you know, we've got, there's many things to talk about with this book, but one of the things that I think is very important with it is as a Jew raising <laughs> this issue, I am not in any way trying to minimise the importance and the reality of discrimination to any other minority right so and that can sometimes feel like that it can sometimes feel this notion that it's a boundaried space a small boundaried space that you've got to talk about racism against black people or discrimination against gay people or whatever it might be and if you put up your hand as a Jew with all your apparent advantages you're sort of like not making space for them that isn't true the way I see it is There's an unboundary space to talk about those things. We should all be talking about those things Mm. and saying, well, I think there might be an issue with the way that this minority is seen, which I have experience of because I'm a member of that minority, is in no way trying to say that their concerns are not valid. But there was a sense, given to us, when me and my brother, when we tried to make that film, of like, well, surely that's not as important as these things that we're trying to do. And in fact, we couldn't get the film made for quite a long time. And then brilliantly, Gary Lineker, who obviously was a Spurs hero, yeah. said, I'll do the film. Uh, and at that point, other footballers came on, Ledley King and Frank Lampard. And then suddenly, we could get it made. And it was, it was I think, useful, although there was. Is it
2: online? Is it on YouTube? It's on accessible? YouTube. It got
1: shown at football matches, but there was also massive, massive pushback. Massive pushback from your Spurs fans, but also from people like you and David Aronovich and sort of intellectual Spurs fans. Did basically. David back off so they too, do Because I
2: just thought you were right after a bit.
1: But anyway, I don't want to get too bogged down in that one issue because it's actually only one of, me, of, of many issues that yeah. show that there is this relegation. But part of
2: the reason why the implication was that actually raising the issue was sort of, you know, diluting somehow... The, the 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 really you know we we shouldn't push ourselves up the hierarchy really where where we don't belong um, uh, you know we're sort of diluting the the moral intensity really of of discrimination against other minorities because as you say in the book we are thought of as rich and white really say something about that actually because okay
1: well the the reason why I think that this happens to Jews is. There's multifold reasons. But the basic one is that Jews are the only minority who are seen by the racists in this split way. And by what I mean by that is that Jews are seen as both low status and high status. They're seen, as all minorities are, as low status, that is thieving, stinking, alien, blah, blah, blah. But Jews are also seen by the racists as powerful, privileged, secretly in control of the world, rich and all the rest of it there's some of them are trying to drown me out as we speak Um, (laughs) (laughs) and they're everywhere everywhere, everywhere, and the the thing about that is that even though that's a sort of racist myth that myth is slightly bought I think by many people it's bought by a lot of people who would not consider themselves to be anti-semitic that Jews are like for example the notion that Jews are rich which is Uh, Statistically, not particularly correct, but more importantly, what I've noticed is when I've brought up the idea that that is a racist stereotype, people often look at me blankly as if to say, but that's a good thing, being rich, isn't it? What's wrong with being rich? Because The problem with that is this, is that the notion that Jews are rich isn't some sort of celebration, right? It's always, always accompanied by a sense that Jews are somehow, through ill-gotten ways, shrewdly and miserly and inhumanly somehow got their hands through conspiracies on money. And none of that is good, right? That always creates envy and rage and down the, down the line genocide. And in this particular case, what this book is about, it's a way of ousting Jews, from what I call the sacred circle of minorities. Sacred circle is just a sort of way of talking about those minorities who were considered to be vulnerable. And if they're vulnerable, then obviously the good people, the good progressive people would want to support them. And I'm not saying they should not do that, one should not do that. But the problem is that if you start to think that one minority is powerful and privileged and not vulnerable, then somehow or other you're ousting them from any concern for protection which is really weird if you're talking about a minority that has been regularly genocided throughout history. So the other reason why I think it happens to Jews, which you mentioned as well, is the whiteness of Jews. And I use a phrase in the book, Jews being Schrodinger's whites. And what I mean by that is Jews are white or non-white, depending on the politics of the observer. And that means that for a right-wing person, and over many, 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 at all. Yeah, over many centuries, and obviously for Nazis, but also for a present American white supremacist, Jews are non-white. The people chanting Jews will not replace us uh, in Charlottesville, they believe that Jews are conspiring with, uh, the, with the black minority and the brown minorities to undermine the Aryan white races, which they believe Jews are not part of. Meanwhile, it seems to me that progressives sometimes see Jews as sort of an ultra-white type people because Jews are powerful and privileged. So, for example, Mir One, who was the artist who drew a mural that some of you may know about because Jeremy Corbyn supported it back in 2017, a mural of some bearded, hook-nosed men playing Monopoly on the back of the world's poor. When a few Jews in that area said, we think this might be anti-Semitic, He put a Facebook post up saying, I see some old white Jewish folk are upset by my depiction of their beloved Rothschild and their beloved Warburg. An incredibly horrible, anti-Semitic, conspiracy theory-laced thing to say, but I'm most interested in the use of the word white in that sentence. Why bother to say some old white Jewish folk? It's a way of saying Jews are not part of any minority that anti-racists need to worry about. By insertion of the word white
2: yeah I mean uh, Donald Trump famously actually thought he was being uh, you know who has um, uh, Jewish son-in-law Jared Kushner and his daughter of course converted to Judaism but he thought he was being complimentary when he went before AIPAC or some Jewish lobby in, in the United States and said well it's wonderful how you people game the system or well, words to that thing, Actually, yeah. you people really know how to do yeah. this which was absolutely an appalling moment of anti-Semitism, really. Yeah, you get, so, lot,
1: though, you get that a lot, though, I think. You get that a lot where people think they're praising Jews <laughs> for being somehow or other... Shrewd, shrewd is the word. Or it's sort of... Shrewding as white, really. Yeah, of yeah. the Jews have yeah. managed to get yeah. to the top, and well done, the Jews, and we're going to keep saying this until people burn their houses down.
0: Yeah. To catch up on the full event, you can subscribe to our Hay Player at hayfestival.org forward slash hayplayer. Between his event for grown-ups with Simon Sharma and his event for his latest children's book, The Boy Who Got Accidentally Famous, I grabbed a coffee with David to find out more about what influences him, starting with trouble sleeping.
1: A bit tired, but fine. <laughs> I'm always a bit tired. because I sleep really badly, um, and I particularly sleep badly in hotels, which I was in last night. Uh, but that's probably more information than anyone needs. <laughs>
0: that must be um, quite quite difficult with your with your work. I would imagine.
1: Yeah, but I've also written about insomnia. I found My first novel, uh, which I don't think I talked about at Hay. Maybe I did. I can't even remember. It isn't about an insomniac. So I've turned it into material at least.
0: I'm going to ask you to cast your mind back. Was there a kind of significant moment for you where you felt like comedy? You sort of connected with it.
1: Well, I came from quite a family where a lot of joking happened. My dad was a very funny bloke. My brother's a very funny bloke. But I think the key moment for me, the catalyst, was when my brother, my older brother, Ivor, played me a tape, a cassette tape, in sort of 1977 of something called Derek and Clive, which was a bootleg tape that Peter Cook and Dudley Moore had made when they were drunk, uh, and really drunk, and it's just incredibly obscene and swearing and horrible and incredibly unacceptable now, but still really, really funny. Um, and it was sort of um, circulating... Uh, at the time, band played it to each other and somehow or other, my brother had got a copy of it. It is now available on, mainly on vinyl and stuff, but um, it was like punk rock for me because it just felt like, oh right, this is a... because at the time there wasn't that much stuff on TV that I would have thought of as proper comedy. It's amazing if you actually go back to the 70s. I mean there's some brilliant, some brilliantly funny people, Eric Morecambe and a few others, but in terms of speaking to what it's actually like to laugh properly at things rather than just jokes that are sort of constructions, there wasn't much. And then this felt like a breakthrough for me, like, oh, God, this is how you can be funny at a Mm -hmm. whole other level. So that was probably the moment that I wanted to do something like that.
0: And um, you spend your time writing for children and for adults as well on a real range of subjects. Do you have a difference in your writing routine? Because, obviously, sometimes you're dealing with some really hard Mm. subjects and then you've got kids' books, which are obviously lighter, did that change your day a lot outside of your working hours? Not
1: really. That's a good point about the way I write. Because it should do, but it probably doesn't. i probably sit down and try and write. And writing is always quite hard, I mean, in the sense of I'm very bad at putting it off, I look at the internet too much, I look out the window too much, I think I'll have a cup of tea and some biscuits now too much, and eventually I get around to writing. And I wouldn't say that that journey of, like, oh, yeah, I've got to actually write is any different or... <laughs> a complex book about antisemitism as it is for a children's book because I think the actual act of writing is as hard either way because there's just different ha- types of hardness, right? So yeah. Jews Don't Count, for example, I guess the hardness is, yeah, the nuances of the arguments I'm trying to make and trying to express them in the same way. But what I don't have to do there is any kind of real sort of plotting or, or, or storytelling in any kind of like real sort of imaginative way. I'm, I'm arguing, it's a polemic, it's, you know, it's a different type of thing. And it's difficult, but there's a great different type of difficulty in trying to think, oh, like my new book, is a, it's, called, it's, about a, it's a Christmas book. And it's about a time when Christmas is controlled by a sort of Amazon-like company called Winterzone. It's called Virtually Christmas, and they basically erase Christmas out of Christmas. Uh, and this girl decides that she's going to try and reclaim Christmas, and indeed find Santa, who's kind of gone AWOL as part of it and that obviously feels much lighter although it's a kind of satire on how we live now yeah. but it's also, but you know you, you, often you just think like, ah oh, I had this idea and it was a good idea but now where does it go? Yeah. And that's part.
0: Yes. Do you have any kind of um, activities or anything, like do you struggle with writer's block or?
1: Yeah, well I do I mean I don't struggle with it because my, my sense of writer's block, whenever I get asked by young people about writing tips, I have given one writing tip, and that is when you think you can't write, just write anything, even if it's gibberish, right? and keep writing it, keep writing the gibberish, and eventually you'll see something will rise out of the gibberish. I find this. now. But well, even if you think, like, I have no idea, it's just a blank page, it's staring back at me, if you just start writing whatever, at some point something will tick. You know, you'll snag- your brain will snag on something, and it will be, oh, right, Um, And for me writing, and this may come from being a stand-up, is really a process of improvisation. I don't don't really plan anything that I write beforehand, including books like You Don't Count. I'm writing a book about atheism at the moment, kind of following up on this sort of non-fiction philosophy that I've suddenly got into. But there's a bit in it, in the middle of it, where I say, by the way, I don't plan these books, (laughs) because these are kind of of stream-of-consciousness books, because they are. Um, and so that's the thing. It's just trying to tap into that to try and get over rice block. But the main thing for me, the main problem for me, is as time has gone on, is more and more distractions, particularly on the screen. I mean, I'm, a, you know, I've, I did a documentary about this, but I'm sort of addicted to social media. You know, you know, which is no good, um, and uh, it's always there as a thing. Like you imagine, I'll reward myself by going to look at Twitter for what you think is three minutes and next thing you know four hours later you're down a rabbit hole <laughs> arguing with someone with a lot of numbers in their name. That's a,
0: There's a peril of, of being a kind of person in the spotlight and yeah. nowadays as well. I, I, do you feel like you have to kind of watch your back with
1: what, social, social media? media?
0: Yeah. To some
1: extent but to some extent as, you know what? To some extent it really doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. It's a weird thing. It feels like it matters and I've been in the storm of that a few times. I've had, you know, I've been trending and I've had lots of trolls and I did a show in fact about trolls. And in the moment, it can feel like, oh, this is incredible and bad and I'm under attack from all sides or whatever. Or, or even I'm not, under, but there's just lots of people talking about me and it feels like, oh, God, you know, destabilising. But you know what? It's over. Yeah. It's over and next thing someone else is trending and someone else is, like, having all that. Yeah. And and it's really important to try and hold on, particularly now. And I don't think just in the public eye because it can happen to anyone. Yeah. You know, In fact, The boys Who Got Accidentally Famous, the book I'm writing I've just done, for children, which I'm about to do an event for, is about a kid who says something on a documentary that's being made at his school, and it leads to him tripping into fame mm-hmm. uh, and going viral, and his life gets completely destabilised. And that can happen to anyone, mm-hmm. you know.
0: I mean, I do, I do feel like as well. Now, there's a lot of comedy in. The social media yeah. there's an excellent I don't know if you have one where you live but there's an excellent local notice board on Facebook for on hey why. oh is there and it's just hysterical it's okay. so funny I mean it's, okay. ma- it's mostly people arguing right but it's, but yeah, it's that's
1: just, what people do I mean yeah. that's really what we've created a <laughs> yeah. massive arguing space. It is. It's quite you know, sweet,
0: though. I mean, it'll, right. it'll, it? be, it'll be pictures of dog poo, well, well, and then everyone being like, oh, "Gonna it? find them and string them up." And it's uh, that's, really... is that
1: sweet? Okay.
0: Well, <laughs> it's, it's just, it's just funny. I just, yeah. You have to just sort of yeah. find it funny. That's although.
1: interesting, actually, isn't it? Because that's what a lot of people. I think a lot of people decided that the social media is this space in which they can create instant justice for mm. things that quite often aren't that important, <laughs> no.
0: but that
1: they're really angry about, and they think, right now, finally. I've yeah. got a way which I could say these people deserve you know, <laughs> being burnt at the stake yeah, because they've littered or whatever they've exactly. done. <laughs> it's less
0: branding than pitchforks anyway. <laughs> well, possibly. <laughs> um, what do, you have, um, do you have any kind of rules on how much you draw from like, your personal life in your writing? I
1: don't have any rules. I draw a lot from my personal life, but probably I, I'm slightly more judicious about it than I used to be. Because certainly when I was writing like, my first novel for adults, I mean, a lot of people do this with their first novel, but there's so many things in there that are clearly from my real life. And the people sort of knew at the time, people would ring me up and say, This is me, isn't it? And I'd say, <laughs> No. And then it obviously was. Um, and like my parents are in it, and my brothers are in it, and it's really obvious. Uh, I mean, I don't, I haven't written an adult novel for quite a long time, and the kids' novels don't have so much of that stuff in it, although there is a character in uh, The Boy Goes Accidentally Famous, a sort of slightly evil producer figure who clearly is Simon Cowell. <laughs> um, but that's sort of more based on my sense of like what a mad version of a TV producer would be than any actual knowledge of Simon Cowell. Um but I um, no I, and also because i am started writing books like Jews Don't Count they are much more about like okay trying to process experiences that I've had and a sense that I've had that, that of a communal, communal feeling amongst say Jews for this experience of feeling downgraded in the identity politics conversation which is, I think, common to lots of people who, who sense it, but it's not about taking someone's life and putting it in a book. That's sort of a slightly different thing.
0: Mm. And in terms of uh, hobbies and stuff you do outside of work, is there anything that would sort of surprise people you really people not, do? Really not, because um,
1: sadly the only hobby I have is playing football. That's like the least surprising <laughs> thing. It's surprising because I'm 58 uh, and I'm presently injured, of course, uh, so I haven't been played oh. for a while, but no, I play football like once, sometimes twice a week, or twice a week's going going now. But um, I have played in the same game, 30 years, seven-a-side football game. Uh, beyond that, what are my hobbies? I should have more hobbies. <laughs> it's like a
0: GCSE language question. Sorry. Yeah, but <laughs> I don't
1: really have more hobbies. I don't, know.
0: And have you got kind of any bucket list
1: uh, um? Well, I've got to the age now where I think I'm just going to do stuff that's like, like I, I'm, it's two, it's two paradoxical things. Like I won't do stuff now, so I turn down loads of stuff if I think I'm not going to enjoy this. I, I'm not going to do it for the money. I'm not going to do it, because, if it I'm, I'm not going to enjoy it. Then I am too old to do stuff I don't enjoy. At the same time, I do say yes to, to slightly bizarre things. So tomorrow, I'm going to Finland to write about saunas. Right? because absurdly life, David. The, the, Finnish gov- the Finnish government got in touch with, well, they, they asked a few writers on a, on a cultural attache, I think that's the word, trip to Finland to try out some of their saunas. I mean, not just like any sort, like whatever, sort of mad saunas in, or strange places in Finland. And as long as you write about it, so I am going to be writing about it, and my wife says to me, why are you doing that? I said, because it sounds like an adventure, and I've no idea really what it would be like. Mm. So I've said yes to it on that <laughs> basis. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, my bucket list is sort of anything that comes at me now that feels like it's going to be different and wild and large. I mean, I, I quite often, I'm quite a say yes to life, but at the same time, possibly in the past, I would be more like, oh, you know, who's going, and do we mm. do this, and maybe I need to do that, and blah, blah, blah. But now I just said yes straight away,
0: because
1: mm. it sounded like, as I say, um, when am I going to get a chance to do that again?
0: You know. Yeah. Do you, Do you feel like you sort of practice facing your fears quite a lot? Yeah. Does that come with broadcasting and and? Well, it comes with stand
1: and... up primarily. Yeah. Someone said to me yesterday, I was about to do this event with Simon Sharma, uh, and you know, it's I don't know what it was, six hundred people, and it's I guess quite a complicated subject about anti-Semitism or whatever. And they said to me, oh, "Are you nervous?" I said, "No, not at all." And the reason I'm not at all nervous is that I do loads of stand-up or have done loads of stand-up the stand-up is so frightening mm. that everything else is not frightening yeah and it's i mean apart from you know being killed yeah. uh, but, <laughs> but, but you know in terms of performing nothing is as is frightening stand-up
0: thank you for listening to the hay festival podcast join me next thursday when i'll be with author liz hyder talking about working at hay festival sexy magicians and illustrating If you're enjoying the podcast, we would really appreciate you telling a friend or giving it a rating. This podcast was hosted by Poppy Evans and produced by Shabie Nahado Achanith. I'll see you next Thursday.